one Dave here from Casual Shooters Podcast. Uh, just a couple things real quick. Laser app. Uh, on our website, I've added a new page. If you go to sponsors, you can see links to all of our sponsors. There's a link for Laser app. You can get 15% off with our code. It's on the website, but it's a great dry fire tool. It's a shot timer and recorder. So it'll record your first shot, splits, transitions. It's even diverse enough that you can set up arrays in different rooms so that you can have to move from one to another. It'll record everything. Amazing device. Check it out. Go to our webpage, casualshooterpodcast.com. Also, Hoist. We've got our discount code on the webpage again, same page. But you get 10% off there, and we're talking IV level hydration for those of you shooting major matches this summer. Even your local matches. It will help keep you hydrated. So go check it out. And also Gun Butter. There's a link for Gun Butter. You can get 20% off with our link. Uh, it's excellent lubrication for your pistols. Put a little on your lugs. The grease on the lugs of your rifle, good to go. All right, so go to our webpage, casualshooterpodcast.com. Go to the sponsor page. Links to their website right there, and the codes are on there for you. All right? Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you later. To this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. This week, you have me, your host, Dave. You have Leo. Hello. He does this every time. Good Lord. <laughs> Huggy. What's up, people? And a yet-to-be-revealed guest. Now, this week's guest comes by way of Rob Epifania. If you remember from his interview, he consulted with a what we call a performance psychologist. If you don't remember, well, shame on you. So anyway, I looked her up. Sure enough, lots of information uh, and seemed like she will be an amazing guest on the show. So without any further ado, let's bring in Dr. Megan Sullivan. How you doing? Very well. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for being on. And happy 4th of July since it's this weekend. Likewise, same to you. And why don't you take a moment and introduce yourself? Well, I'm, I'm Dr. Megan Sullivan. I'm a performance psychology specialist. So what that means is I work with people in a variety of performance domains, whatever performance looks like for you, whether it's in sports or at work or in shooting. And I help to teach and train different mental skills that individuals can apply in the midst of performance to preserve and or enhance performance quality. So my background's actually in educational and counseling psychology, but I specialize in sport and performance psychology. Okay. Interesting. All right. Now, how we normally do this is um, we usually ask a few questions to kind of break the ice and get to know our guests. So we're going to start there. Leo, you are up. Well, so the first thing I like to warn people that this is a really important question because it could set the tone for the rest of the interview. But before we get into that, I just want to point out to everybody that's listening our combined IQs, three of us, I'm pretty sure, fall very short of the docs. So we're going to try not to sound like Neanderthals Probably. today. Um, that being said, we are definitely mouth uh, What is your favorite movie? Comes into play later. 
<laughs> Did you say my favorite movie? Yes. Favorite movie. Oh, that's a hard. Um, yes, ma'am. I would have to say The Breakfast Club. Oh, wow. That's a new one we haven't had. I like that. Yeah. Okay. It's a strong <laughs> pull. Okay. You look disappointed. Right, I think I think this is gonna go well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very good. Oh pull. no, I think I think this is gonna go really well. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're, we're good. We're good. Okay. All right. Well, Huggy, I'm gonna it's ask. It's a them. movie about kids in high school. Oh, I I saw the movie in the theater. Remember, I'm older <laughs> than you. <laughs> you looked a little lost. <laughs> No, no, I was. I remember it. Trust me, old Molly Ringwall. I was. Oh, I remember. Yeah, boom. See? That's Take right. That mic drop. <laughs> anyway, <Wow. laughs> don't start. Don't start. Because <laughs> I'll be done. Okay. Anyway, my question for you, Doc, is: What is your favorite book? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> favorite book. I don't know if I can say I have a favorite, but one that I very much like is Peak Performance by Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. Okay. Um, it has a lot of uh, principles from acceptance and commitment therapy, which is just kind of this idea that we don't have to change just uncomfortable things or like change our thoughts. We can kind of accept what is and still perform despite that. So I liked how they kind of drilled down to those key points and they, I think they conveyed it in a really applicable way. Nice. Nice. Now, is this the same Magnus, the uh, uh, the I, I don't want to say a powerlifter, but the gentleman that competes in the uh, the World Strongman competitions? Not mm -hmm. the same one. Okay, same different Magnus. Different just one. Make sure. Okay. Yeah. All right, because I was like, hmm, that guy. There's not just there's not just one Magnus. Okay, There's I was just a whole bunch of them, especially in that competition. I'm always like, which Magnus is it? Yeah, exactly. That's why I just wanted to know which Magnus was it. So, okay, he could probably uh, rip that book in half with his bare hands, though. Probably. <laughs> so, uh, Doc, uh, my next question for you is Who is your favorite superhero? If you had to choose one, mm. what would be your favorite superhero? Not well-versed on superheroes, but from the little that I do know, I would probably say, probably say Batman. Okay. Only because he doesn't really have a superpower, which I think is pretty cool. That is cool. He just kind of does his thing. Yes, he does. He uses a lot of brain power. I like it. <laughs> well, I mean, being rich helps, but it's not really a superpower, but it's, you know, he buys I could be Batman if I was rich. <laughs> they come at a hefty price, but and it's it's funny because every time that comes up, that's I like to talk about the Punisher because he's just a dude that can is just really good at getting beat up. Like there's no superpower; he just can take a beating and then just put it on somebody else. So, yeah. So we're going to start kind of shifting into a little bit more um, of what we're going to talk about. So you do help professional and semi-professional shooters. Are you yourself a shooter or is this just one of the realms that you exist in as far as people that you assist? 
I'm not a shooter myself. I, I have shot a couple of times, but I don't compete. Um, had a friend who was in the shooting community and just word of mouth spread and then, you know, connected with, with Rob Epiphania and things kind of took off from there. Okay. But you're not shooting averse. You're like, I mean, you would shoot if for funsies. Yeah. I, I very much enjoyed it the couple of times that I did. I actually shot more on the, an AR-15 than handguns. So that was, it was a good time. Okay. <laughs> All right, Doc. Kind of a baller. Okay, cool. <laughs> she doesn't have time for handguns. She's like, going bigger. <laughs> yeah, she's like, man, give me the big stuff. Right. Anybody have a cannon back there I could shoot? <laughs> Those were legal to own in 1776. Just so everybody knows, Fourth of July weekend, there's my cup. Um, okay. Now, unless the interwebs are incorrect, which there's always that possibility, but I don't think this is wrong. You played D one softball at Butler. I did. Yes. Okay. So we're going to start a little sports psychology on yourself. Uh -oh. Uh oh. So when did you start playing softball and when did you realize you were good enough to play at the college level? I started playing softball in first grade, I believe. Um, I, obviously wow. competed all the way through high school. So when I was, or excuse me, through college, when I was in high school is when I started getting recruited. So that was a good indication that I was doing something right. Um, and yeah, I had the time of my life at Butler. It was the best four years that I've had. Oh, wow. Okay. Because that's uh, exactly where I was going next. Now, did you guys, well, not exactly next, but follow on next. Now, did you guys ever make it out? I watched the uh, this year's College World Series, uh, and someone at work also follows it. So we were talking back and forth. Did you ever make it to the College World Series when you were at Butler? No, I was a guest on TV, just you know, watching it. But I was never there as an athlete. So um, that's still pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was at my in my couch watching it, meaning you know, I was a guest in that sense. I wasn't <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Don't now worry. I got the joke and it was really good. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Their synapses aren't good. firing all the way. He hasn't had all of his coffee yet. Need more coffee. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So what position did you play? Um, in college, I played second base primarily. I'm a little bit of outfield in my freshman year. And then I had a stint at first base just from some injuries, but primarily second base. And then prior to that, I pitched for eight years all the way through college. Or excuse so, me, high school. I keep mixing those up. What, what was your I, I get it. At my age, everything gets mixed up. So it's all good. Now, what was uh what was your best pitch? My best pitch. Hmm. I'm trying to remember. Um I had a pretty good screwball, which if you're not familiar, it goes it cuts in on a right-handed batter, goes away from a left-handed batter. Mm. Okay. Now, does it cut in and down or just in? Um, it can do both, but okay. if you're just talking about a flat screw, it just goes in. Okay. All right. Yeah, my best pitch was bean ball. That's how I kept <laughs> the pitchers away. I mean, the batters away. Now, what is your favorite? This is our most personalized question. What is your favorite memory from playing baseball at Butler? I mean, softball at Butler. Favorite memory. Hmm. 
my last, our very la- my very last game of my senior season, we weren't in contention for anything, but it was my second to last at bat. I think I hit a home run and it was just a very nice culmination for me. I'd only hit, I think, six in my four years. So it wasn't a very frequent occurrence, but I just think they remember as I was rounding the bases, like soaking in that moment. So I remember that very vividly. It was, that was and special. who were you guys playing? We were up at Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> they were playing the Losers. They're playing what? What'd you say, the Leo? <laughs> the people that lost because she hit a she hit a dinger. <laughs> you kind of cut out a little bit, so it's hard for me to understand you. All right. Uh, usual. Now your your Instagram is like a gold mine of information. Yes. Um, after Rob had mentioned to you, I went to your, uh, I looked you up on Instagram and went to your Instagram page. I was like, oh my gosh, there is a ton of information here. So as you're well aware, um, I created a presentation for the interview. Let me go here. And... Let me kind of slide this over here. There we go. Now I can share my screen. Boo, 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 boo. That's the one I want. And go. All right. Awesome. So this is just the like the cover slide here. So the things that I wanted to touch on with your Instagram was you talk about caffeine, breathing, processing, visual information, sleep deprivation and performance, which that's a really big one. I think we all have some questions about because we, well, not, not those two, they used to, we all, but at some point in our career, all of us have worked 24 hour shifts. I'm currently working a 24 hour shift and we changed our schedule used to be 24 hours on 48 hours off. And that was plenty of time to recover for your next 24 hour shift. Well, now we go to, I'll use a Monday through Friday routine, just so you understand. Monday would be a 24. Then you get off Tuesday, work a 24 on Wednesday, off Thursday, work another 24 on Friday. Um, And I've been on one of the, well, for our county, the busiest unit in the county on that 24 on, 24 off, 24 on, 24 off, 24 on schedule. And that is brutal. Um, So we'll get into, we have some, you know, some specific questions about that when we get there. I really like the information you had about chronotypes and, and typecasting people, that type of thing. And then mood versus motivation, which I also thought was very interesting. So we'll start with our vitamin C. Caffeine, vitamin caffeine, because I I literally live on caffeine. Um, but I'm finding out that it's probably all psychological at this point because I don't know how much it's actually helping. <laughs> so with that, we'll start with the benefits. Now on your Instagram, you had that's a if it's working properly, uh, that's a pretty significant increase in vigilance of plus. 20 to 35 percent 
Marksmanship's up 25 to 30%, and reaction time's up 70%. That is a lot. That's not, there we go. That's better. Um, now, in my notes, my question is, I get the vigilance and the reaction time um, with caffeine, but how do you get the benefits of the marksmanship? Is it focused from the caffeine or? Yeah, it's, I don't know for certain, but I, my guess would be that it's, it's a byproduct of increased attention. So vigilance, attention, and reaction time are three kind of foundational cognitive skills that are enhanced by caffeine use and appropriate doses. So my best guess would be that because attention is enhanced, you're more focused on your target. The more focused you are on your target, the more likely you are to actually hit the target. Okay. Are you, are you, are there, because you would know and I wouldn't, so that's why I'm asking. Um, are there, do you know of any specific studies with caffeine and like marksmanship performance or? Yeah, there's actually quite a bit um, from Walter Reed sleep researchers. They look with military okay. populations. So that's where this one actually comes from. Um, I forget the specific population off the top of my head, but it was a group of soldiers who, you know, one group didn't have caffeine, the other group did have caffeine. Um, I don't remember if this particular one, they were sleep deprived as well, uh, but the, these were the findings that they showed. Okay. So basically they just proved they should keep the coffee in the MREs. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> yes. And they actually manufactured caffeine gum for that purpose. If you're not familiar. Oh, yes. Oh. I actually have some of that. Myself. <laughs> I, I am aware of it, but I, I got out long before caffeine gum was uh, before they even started putting Tabasco sauce in the MREs. So <laughs> we had to bring our own, but um, interesting. Did they actually, are you, do you know if they actually put caffeine gum in them or they just used it for the study? No, I believe they're standard issue with MREs now. Wow. Um, reason being is it, it gets into your bloodstream faster than if you're ingesting it as a liquid. So it'll activate in about five minutes or so versus caffeine the, that you're drinking would take about 10 to 15 minutes. So if you need a quick So through burst, the mucous membranes of the buccal cavity? Yeah, through your cheeks. Yeah, it's through actually, it's cheeks, cheeks. Oh, I thought you said teeth. I'm like, teeth, <laughs> no, what? <laughs> no, through, through your cheeks. But it's actually interesting yeah. because I actually have some of that gum myself. And it's if you actually get the package, the package will tell you if you are a civilian, you can only take like one or two. But if you are military, it actually says you can take up to X, Y, and Z amounts further. So it's actually pretty oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. So, so there's the civilian disclaimer so they don't get sued. And, but the military, since they can't sue you, take all you want. <laughs> pow, pow. Exactly. There we go. All right. <laughs> that was a conversation we had last night, Doc. And it, oh, my God. <laughs> For like 15 minutes, we were all useless. We were laughing so hard. It was ridiculous. Um, all right. So let's get in because I obviously take inappropriate dosing amounts. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about next. So the information was non-habitual caffeine users, which excludes me completely, is 200 milligrams, habitual three to 400. But once you hit... 600, I guess, 
you start getting negative effects and lethal. I assume that's a lethal one-time dose greater than 5,000 milligrams. I believe it's cumulative. Don't quote me, oh. but I'm pretty oh, sure um, in a day. I feel like I could have uh, easily broached that at some point. <laughs> wow. Okay. Now, the negative effects at 600, do you know like what we're talking about? Like what, how should does be it start affecting? I should be. <laughs> so all, of these, num all of these numbers should be taken with a grain of salt because there's a lot of factors that can affect how you process caffeine. If you use regularly, you're going to have a higher tolerance. Some people are more sensitive, just genetically speaking, to caffeine versus others. Um, how much food you've eaten, how hydrated you are. There's a lot of factors at play. So these are all kind of general ranges. Um, generally speaking, when we get above 400 milligrams, we start to see, again, some of the negative effects. So maybe inattention, jitteriness, anxiety can start to kick up. Basically, we're, our body is kind of mimicking a stressed response. So all of the the limitations that come with being overly stressed can start to creep in. Interesting. I, yeah, I would see the jitteriness. That's what I was thinking in my head. For, mm -hmm. So for a paramedic, jitteriness, trying to start an IV is probably not the best thing. It's like having Parkinson's and trying to start an IV. Right. Yeah, not good. Don't don't mind me. <laughs> <laughs> as as uh, the person's like, is this your first time doing it? No, I've been doing this for 20 years. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So best practices, very interesting. 200 milligrams every six hours. You've got to avoid six hours prior to bed. I think that's probably understandable. Save caffeine use for performance. Now, so let's start with that first one. 200 milligrams every six hours. Is that for habitual or non-habitual use? users i believe this one was for non-habitual users um if you kind of pace that out let's say you get up and you drink coffee at eight o'clock and then six hours later you're at you know two o'clock in the afternoon and then let's say you know you're winding down for bed around eight or nine it usually rounds up to about two doses per day you know 200 milligrams a piece so it's not that you're drinking caffeine incessantly throughout the day you want to try and limit it to up to 400 milligrams max, assuming that you're not overly dependent on it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and I know there are studies out there now that show that um, it was a hydration um, article I read where they showed that caffeine in normal doses is not enough to dehydrate you. So you can actually get hydration from caffeinated beverages, where I think for a long time, it was thought that um, those caffeinated beverages will dehydrate you. Have you seen anything more recently to contradict that? Um, I haven't, but I also haven't looked for it. That would be a better question oh. for a performance dietitian. But I know that from the dietitians I have worked with, they always scoff when people say, well, there's water in coffee. So I don't know that that <laughs> fully counts as um, as your water intake. Gotcha. Okay. Um, save caffeine use for performance. Now, if you're like me, I'm using it pretty much every day. Now, some days though, I'll have one cup and that's all I have that day. So 
I'm trying to figure out the save caffeine use for performance. How would someone like me save caffeine use for performance? How, what does that look like for me? Well, if you're, if you have a really high tolerance and you find that you need caffeine during performance, then rather than going higher to start, I probably would suggest trying to wean off during the times of the day where you really don't need caffeine. If it's just out of habit or it's not serving any particular purpose, if you can try to reduce that tolerance and then save that caffeine use for performance where it might have a bigger effect, that would probably pay off more. I know that's easier said than done, but the idea here is that if we're drinking caffeine regularly, our body's gonna become desensitized to it. So if we were looking for a boost during performance and our body is so used to caffeine from our day-to-day drinking that that boost is now useless, then it might be something to consider is, is this caffeine I'm drinking now serving a purpose or is it just out of habit? The answer is yes. <laughs> I actually, it's funny. It's interesting you say that because when I was in college, uh, I used to, of course, you know, when you study for exams and everything like that, caffeine was my, my friend. I mean, I was just doing anything to ever take caffeine from dodos to even taking the coffee, uh, beans and grinding them up and just putting them in my cheek and gum and just trying to get whatever caffeine I could get to stay awake to study and everything like that. And uh, Put it in the eyeball. Works every time. Yeah. And, uh, now I've done so much caffeine that I can drink like so much caffeine and I'm like, uh, it's not hitting me. I can just pretty much close my eyes and be done. You know, where I know other people that can be drinking it and they're just like bouncing off the walls and I'm looking at them like, you suck. <laughs> So was there a question with that or just a comment? No, just a, com just a comment. No okay. question. I didn't say it was a question. I just, say I just found it interesting because when she said that, I'm like, yeah, I can relate to that. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. I agree with that too. Um, now here's, here's a specific question that I came up with, with shooting and caffeine use. So like, mm, I guess it was a couple months ago now, they had the Del Marva Championship. It's two hours away from me. So I drink some coffee on the way up because I have to leave at like six, you know, between five and six in the morning to get there. Then I have to shoot all day. So I'm drinking a little bit of coffee in the morning. I'm not a fast coffee drinker. So even though I drink coffee all the time, I probably drink no more than two cups of coffee a day. Um, <clears throat> what I have found is, the and i'll ask you about that later but the caffeinated drinks are the ones where i end up drinking a lot more of but um anyway so it's two hours to get there so let's say i've completed a normal coffee cup size worth of caffeine so what's that about 160 milligrams of caffeine then i have to shoot all morning then there's a lunch break then you shoot again all afternoon for someone who's a habitual coffee user, one or two coffee uh, cups of coffee a day, if I drink a cup there, I almost feel like, for me, I throw a no-dose in my hoist hydration drink. So I'm hydrating with hoist. It's got uh, a bunch of other electrolytes that I need, potassium, calcium, that type of stuff. And then at lunch, after lunch, I do the same thing. I drink another hoist with another no-dose, you know, another 200 milligrams of caffeine. Um, 
how does that sound for a game plan of caffeine use to try to maintain performance through a, an all-day match? I mean, it, it sounds good. It's going to depend on the person. I know that's a really boring answer. Just how fast you metabolize caffeine, it's going to be different person to person. Again, have you eaten any food? But I think the fact from what you just described, you're kind of spacing it out over the course of the day. Um, okay. I don't see any glaring red flags with that, but I could be missing something. Um, the idea is that we just don't want to become reliant on caffeine to where we can't function without it. So it can certainly supplement performance. It's it's really helpful in that regard. But also if you find that you're, you just need caffeine to function or to be awake, that just means that you're deficient on sleep and you, you don't, you don't need more caffeine. You need more sleep. Right. Yeah, I get that. No. And I'm just thinking of the hypervigilance portion of it, mm -hmm. you know, wanting to be as close to the edge of being fully alert and vigilant as absolutely possible. So, you know, when you're going through a stage, which I'm sure having worked with Rob, you know what, what that's about, mm -hmm. where you're constantly alert and not easily um, distracted by anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I would say since you use caffeine regularly and for other people who do, who are also listening, just kind of pay attention to your body as well and test it out in training. If you notice that, you know, let me try taking caffeine at this point and then I'll wait so long and then I'll, you know, basically mimic your dosing schedule that you would for a match and just notice how your body feels and kind of tweak it from there. Um, but it's going to be subjective based off of the person and how, how they process it. Okay. All right. So um, I'm, I want to go back to save it for performance for a minute. So nationals for me is September 9th, 10th, and 11th. You mentioned, you know, maybe trying to wean yourself off before you get into a big match where you can use it for performance. How someone who's a habitual user like myself and, and look, I drink bang energy drinks. I drink rain um, at work because I, I know I'm tired. So I'm, I'm using an excessive amount of caffeine because I think those are like 300, 360 milligrams of drink. Most I've ever had is two in one day. That's a lot. Um, but I, how long should someone like me try to wean themselves off before that first day at nationals where I'm going to have some caffeine use for performance? It's a very specific question. I don't have an answer for you. I'm sorry. Um, okay. I think just experiment ahead of time is all I can say and see how it affects you. And if, if you notice that you've got withdrawal symptoms or you're, you know, you're detoxing too quickly, so to speak, then kind of scale that back so that you're still, you know, comfortable. But um, I can't speak to the specific, specific timing, unfortunately. Okay. But somebody else smarter than I in that area can't. Okay. All right. We're going to go to the cautionary tale here. This is interesting. The first bullet I find very interesting. Ineffective after three nights of less than five hours of sleep. In the schedule that I'm on, that's pretty much five days for me of getting probably less than five hours of sleep because I use caffeine throughout the day at work to keep me attentive. Um, which then means that I typically don't, don't sleep well that night. 
Less than 24 hours later, I'm back at work because I get up at 3.30 in the morning to be at work by 6. So that Monday morning really starts at 3.30. I don't get off work till 6 the next morning. And then I'm back up at 3.30 again the next morning. Um, how, when you say ineffective, like it has zero effect at all or? So this research comes from... Um study from a few years ago, they looked at individuals over the course of five days and they were restricted to five hours of sleep per day. And they were given 400 milligrams. One group was given 400 milligrams of caffeine daily. And then the other group was given nothing. And what the researchers found was that the first two days, caffeine was helpful. By the third day, the caffeine group was on par with the placebo group. And by days four and five, the caffeine group was actually performing worse than the placebo group. So basically the caffeine, they developed a sleep restricted caffeine dependence or tolerance rather in that short span. So their body wasn't able to process caffeine anymore. So it wasn't working. Wow. The only way they... to restore that is to get sleep is what the, the take home of that is. Now, were they... Uh, like we talked about earlier with the um, problems, the negative effects, were they experiencing any of the jitteriness or anything like that when they reached that third day or fourth day? Um, I don't believe so because they, again, the caffeine wasn't really working anymore at that point. So okay. they were, it was as if they weren't taking any caffeine. All right. Now with the sleep restoring effectiveness, is it just one night of, eight hours of sleep or are we talking what does that what does that take again it'll be slightly de dependent on the person but it'll it'll take at least a few days to get back um this particular research also showed that um, the caffeine group took longer to recover based off or compared to the placebo group so wow. it basically indicated that there was an overwhelming sleep debt that had accrued unique to that caffeine population versus the the non-caffeine users. So not only is their performance, you know, getting worse than placebo group, but their recovery period is also significantly longer. That's interesting because what I have found, and, and now I'm wondering if it's because of all the caffeine I do use through the week, through those five days, is we get after those five days of working and not working, we get a four day break off of work and then you start the schedule again. And I'm finding that I'm tired throughout those four days still. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to, to do anything. And then you start the cycle all over again. So that's interesting. I wonder if that has something to do with the lack of sleep and all of the caffeine use. Absolutely. And that was one of the high points of the, the article was that it's the combination of caffeine usage and sleep restriction that, results in slower recovery um, and greater sleep debt, meaning we just feel tired longer. Okay. I'm going to make sure to cut this portion of the um, podcast and send that to my wife. <laughs> I like it. Um, all right. So the next thing, moving on from caffeine, vitamin C, we're going to vitamin B, <laughs> which is breathing. <laughs> Essential for life as we know it. Now, just so you know, Doc, uh, all three of us um, 
have been or currently are paramedics. So this I found there was some stuff on your Instagram page that I saw that we'll be getting into that I, I wasn't even aware of. Hmm. Um, and that being nitrous oxide or nitric oxide. Now hmm. I realize after seeing your stuff and then going and researching some things that they just discovered in 1995, that we actually produce this in our cells, in our nasal passageways, mm -hmm. which I thought was very interesting. And there's a lot of um, benefits to this, but the joke I made earlier was, you know, we're all mouth breathers. That's why we're the, a little slower <laughs> on the uptake. Um, uh, depending on whether you're a nose breather or a mouth breather actually has a lot to do with a lot of stuff that I had no idea about. Mm -hmm. So just for the audience, I'm, I'm going to let them know what we have here. If they're not reviewing this on YouTube, if they're just listening audio wise, like I said, it is produced in the nasal passages and this is all by way of Dr. Sullivan. That's how I found all this out. It decreases resistance to blood flow in the lungs. So it vasodilates so we're talking less chance of pulmonary hypertension, um, which I've seen in really oddly, mostly women, um, increases arterial oxygenation, which is always a good thing. It's a bronchodilator, so it has beta-2 effects. Um, and this is the part that I was even having a conversation with my wife about, which I thought was pretty cool, um, which explains why I always said I, I would never get COVID, is antimicrobial properties. So that nitric oxide mixing in there. So we already know that when air gets into your nose, you know, it warms, uh, humidifies, mo dehumidifies, moistens, all of that. Um, and it now has the antimicrobial properties. I'm going to change. Oh, shoot. Yeah. So I thought there were some. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I feel like I'm missing something here. Ah, I know what it was. I knew there was a question. You posted on your Instagram that, I'm going to read it so I don't mess it up. Humming during exhalation generates a 15-fold increase. Do you have any idea how that, I could not find that anywhere. Uh, obviously, I'm just Googling. But how does that work? Yeah, there's actually an article on this. I can. I don't know the author off the top of my head, but I can share it with you if you're interested. Yeah. I don't know if they know for certain, but their their best guess is that basically in your nasal cavity, when you hum, it has vibration effects and it basically drums mm -hmm. up the molecules. So it's like they're oh. all up for grabs and then it's able you're able to take it in easier. So kind of like tapping on a, a um, carbonated beverage where you see the bubbles coming up. Yes. Yep. That type of effect. Okay. Cool. Now, it's funny because you know we're we're all in the fire department. We all do different things. Go ahead, Leo. Oh, I don't know what he was going. What? No, that was it. As I'm going to cut this part out and send it to to Elaine because she gets mad at me for humming all the time. I'm going to tell her it's good for me. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So us all being firefighters. <laughs> there's um, a lot of people on CPAP in a fire station. 
I am not one of them, but there are a lot of people like that. And I found it interesting that people who are mouth breathers, you've got your increased blood pressure, increased resting heart rate. I'm going to skip the third one because I want to come back to that because I didn't understand it. Increased headaches, increased depression, which I also didn't understand the correlation. Increased dehydration of 42%, which I totally get because when you exhale through your mouth, you're losing a lot of moisture. So that makes perfect sense. And increased airway inflammation, which I kind of get. But the increased lower back pain and increased depression, how does that happen? So for increased lower back pain, proper breathing says that we use our diaphragm when we breathe. A lot of us don't breathe into our diaphragm. We breathe high into the chest, which leaves our lower back region vulnerable to injury. When you breathe into the diaphragm, it stabilizes the spine. So it provides greater structural integrity for when you're moving. So all of this information comes from the Oxygen Advantage, which is where I got my certification through. It's a phenomenal resource. There's a book by the same name. Their website's really great as well as their Instagram. Uh, but basically, when we breathe low into the lungs, it activates our diaphragm, which helps, again, to basically think about if you've got a, a, a pop can or a soda can, depending on where you're from, and you just blow air into that can and it puffs it out to provide stability. That's basically what's happening when you breathe low into the diaphragm as it provides this pocket of structure around your spine so that it limits or reduces the incidence of lower back pain because you're moving more functionally. Very interesting. I just learned something. Mm -hmm. Now, what about depression? How does mouth breathing increase depression? So it's more when you breathe through your nose, there's 30 plus functions that your nose serves, one of which is just regulating your hormones. And so if we're breathing through the mouth, we're not getting that benefit. On top of that, breathing through the mouth triggers your stress response. So we're kind of just all screwed up hormone wise, um, neurotransmitter wise. So our brain isn't getting the restoration that it could. Another piece here is that when we breathe through the mouth, when we're asleep, it also fragments our sleep. We have stressed sleep. So our brain isn't able to recover as well as it otherwise could, which can lead to, you know, decreased sleep quality is correlated with depression. Okay. Wow. Very interesting. Who knew that just breathing through your mouth can create so many problems? Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a, a whole other list. I assume um, I get the dental health Decreased dental health, uh, decreased deep sleep, decreased body temp. I thought this was interesting. Decreased blood flow to the brain by up to 50%. Is that just pressure in your neck, reducing the flow of blood through the carotid arteries or? Yeah. 50% reduction in the carotids. Wow. So if you got Bruits, you're, you're in deep kimchi. <laughs> so. If you don't know what carotid bruits are, be happy. That's a good thing. Hmm. Decreased mental clarity. Is that because of those functions that the nose provides you're not getting? Sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So let me ask you a question. So the people that are take, using the CPAP machines that are using the full mask, I know you're saying about using your mouth it would be better if they had the nasal uh, style versus the full mouth covering style. 
Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. And in an ideal world, obviously, you wouldn't have to use the CPAP. So right. again, I'm not a sleep researcher, full disclaimer here, but right. what the right. research has shown, at least um, from what the oxygen advantage has shared, is that when we breathe through our nose, because it has, you know, we have a smaller circumference versus breathing through the mouth, that greater air pressure tightens and tones the muscles and tissues of the airway to make nasal breathing easier. We ideally want to breathe through the nose during the day, during physical exercise, and especially during sleep. So if we can train ourselves to breathe through the nose on a regular basis, we're able to increase the strength of our airways so they can support themselves while we're sleeping. So the day-to-day -day breathing is critical for that. And then there's also a product. Some people just use mouth tape to mm -hmm. tape their mouth shut, just like mm -hmm. a piece in the center. There's also a product, I'm not a sponsor, but a myotape, it just goes right around the mouth with a hole in the center. And the idea is that it provides just enough tension on your face so that when your jaw starts to drop open when you're asleep, it'll keep it shut. Mm. So it helps to sustain nasal breathing throughout the night until your body is able to support itself. Very interesting. So, so duct tape is? <laughs> It is allowed. I get it's it. Technically, an option, yeah. Yeah, I like it, and I like that. You know, breathing through your nose tones and strengthens the airway. I mean, if you're a summer body, perfect. Mm -hmm. Kind of tighten up that whole area up there. It's good. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> now, here are some of the things we were just talking about: widens the areas, greater airway pressure, which you just mentioned. Um, improves lung capacity is that because of the greater air pressure is it almost like a peep so it's breathing through the nose kind of correlates with other functional breathing characteristics so another one is low breathing which means we're breathing into the diaphragm as well as slow breathing meaning the rate at which we're taking air in so whenever we breathe through the nose it naturally promotes low breathing it's easier to breathe into the diaphragm versus the chest when we breathe through the nose and then it also takes longer to breathe in a full breath through the nose because the airways are smaller. So you can't get as much air in at once. So that combination of factors helps to improve the strength of our lungs, improve the, the strength of our diaphragm. It gives us enough time for that air to work its way down into the bottom of our lungs to thereby increase capacity. So I'm gonna interject a question here uh, because being a former athlete myself, uh, I remember back in the days of like cracking the ammonia inhalant sticks and sticking them up to my nose to basically opening up the passages so I could breathe more air in. I'm assuming that was not good. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> it felt good at the time. Don't don't yeah. go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the time, you're absolutely right. I mean, it was like, oh my God, I can breathe, and I felt like I. Just taking all this, you know, mm -hmm. oxygen and everything of that nature. But after looking at your uh, data and your, uh, uh, your 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 information here, I'm just kind of like, ooh, yeah. I guess I should have done that. <laughs> there is actually an easier, safer way to get that same effect: is if you do five strong breath holds, which okay. just means that you're gonna inhale and then exhale through the nose. Hold your breath until you have a moderate to strong air hunger or urge to breathe. And then after that point hits, you release, breathe through the nose for about a minute or so, and then repeat that five times. And that will naturally open up your airways. 
that's good to know. Yeah. Seriously, that is awesome. I'm, I'm but at the same time, it doesn't sound as fun as just sticking ammonia nitrate. <laughs> Definitely not. I mean, so it just not it. You when you go to the excitement factor, it just doesn't equate. Mm -hmm. Makes more I don't sense think he's gonna be way, but, right all those. Yes, yes. When I'm uh, writing all these tickets for people parking in the fire lane that shouldn't be there, and I'm getting all upset and everything like that, and I'm gonna do my breathing control. <laughs> He's not gonna be. <laughs> all right. So the next one we've got is the the visual information. Um, you had some information about fixation, visual fixation. Um, permitting information processing within three degrees of visual angle, and you must maintain it for a tenth of a second. You had a hundred milliseconds, so I was like, okay, a tenth of a second. Um, now, I probably should have put the other slide in here next. Um, so I'm going to skip one and go. I'm going to go back and forth between these two slides because you also had saccade which is eyes darting from one position to another. Um, and you can only do three saccades in a, in a second. So about 0.33 per saccade. Now, my question is, um, shoot. What allows us to recognize or see something when we see it out of our periphery and we're not necessarily fixating on it. Now, I know you're going to catch movement. Movement catches our eyes. But what actually, I guess I just need more information on this fixation thing. So this, the, these definitions come from something called quiet eye training or quiet eye research, which was kind of my niche for my, my dissertation. So Ooh. quiet eye is basically our ability to fixate or hold our visual attention on a specific target or location that's relevant to our task. And so for those parameters for a quiet eye fixation, it was holding your eyes on the target or location within three degrees of visual angle for at least 100 milliseconds. And that was what the, her name is Joan Vickers. She's like the pioneer of quiet eye research. Um, she said that that's considered the quiet eye period, which is where the brain can actually process the information that it's looking at. So the idea with her research was that if we can see how athletes or performers are looking, look at their visual behaviors, what she noticed was that experts or more proficient performers had longer fixations and fewer deviations in their eye movements. And that contributed to higher levels of performance. So basically meaning that as long as I'm holding my visual attention on my location for enough time or longer than not, I'm more likely to hit that target or hit the ball or whatever your sport you're playing. Now, is there a point where you hold your gaze too long? Um, Probably only to the extent that maybe the, the moment has passed <laughs> or you're no okay. longer like within your window to execute whatever task you're doing. But okay. basically, the, the longer your eyes linger, the more information they can process. Okay. Now, another part of this question is um, when I spent some time in the military, 
I had learned that for nighttime, you know, you've got your cones and your rods. Your cones are used primarily in daytime rods at night, but the rods are more on the outside. They're not in the center. So you end up getting a blind spot right in the middle of your eyes. Mm -hmm. So you've got to look. They always taught us five to 10 degree offset vision. Um, I don't know if that's too far off or what, but now how does fixation does fixation still work at nighttime or is there something different there? Um, I haven't seen, or I didn't at least look up any research on nighttime um, for when I dug into this literature, but based off of what you're saying, you know, it's obviously the case that if you're looking at something, fixating something in the dark, you're not going to be seeing it. So you have to adjust your, your focal point accordingly. Um, but I don't know any specific research that looked at vision in the dark, not to say there isn't any, I just haven't seen it. Right. I get it. Yeah. I'm wondering if it's actually maybe five to 10 might be a little bit excessive where it's just anything more than three. If mm -hmm. that three degrees is the normal visual angle. Hmm. I thought it was interesting too, because you put in your Instagram the way you determine what the visual angle is. And I know you said it's the size of the outstretched thumb, but is that with your arm extended and then your thumb extended out. Yep. Let me get it back in the screen there. Okay. Because that's not that's not a lot of space. Not at all. Okay. Another way you can test that is if you put both thumbs out and then you just slowly pull them apart, but keep your eyes in the middle. You'll notice very quickly how blurry your thumbs become after you just move them. So it just reinforces that that visual acuity area is very very small. Okay. Now I have a question for you then. Now, when I do that, two thumbs out, I got them together and then I move them. When I move them that far apart, I have three images. I have three thumbs. Is that, I mean, I don't know if that, if you, you go beyond that and you start getting four thumbs that you're too far <laughs> out. I mean, does that mean anything at all? Um, I think it just means that you've lost focus. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's not a surprise. <laughs> All right. So I want to go back to Saccad for a second. Um, and it, the movement of your eyes preventing uh, being able to focus and fixate on an object and for what you need to do. Um, are there any things in particular that cause this to happen? Stress. Definitely. Oh. So okay. anytime that we're under threat or we're perceiving that we're under threat, our eyes will naturally scan our environment looking for threats. So even if there's not a physical threat in the environment, if even if it's just mental stress or, you know, something that you're perceiving, your body responds as if it's under attack. So it will start to look for that threat so that it can seek it before it gets sought. Very interesting. Hmm. Okay. It's really good to know when you get pulled over for driving drunk. And they're looking for visual nystagmus. They'd be like, it's just saccade, bro. Science. <laughs> I'm gonna take this. Like, it's saccade. I'm good. I'm not drunk. Oh, that's hilarious. All right. So so blinking is a, a tenth of a second. And but you had can preserve information from a previous location. I guess that just means you can 
you're not losing anything when you blink your eyes. Right. Now, in all of your studies, did uh, and with um, performance and these studies you've read with soldiers and things like that, uh, was there anything in there about people who shoot and blinking and ways to train people not to blink when you have the recoil of a firearm or weapon being fired? As far as I know, that's, I don't think we can train that away. I think that's just something we have to deal with. Okay. And anxiety. Here's a, so I put in the first shooting stage of the day and you're the first shooter that, that creates stress for people. Not everybody, but, but some people. Um, so I can see where, like you said, Sakad being a stress induced function, I can see where that would create a Sakad. Um, but how would you coach somebody? Let, like, let's say I'm going to nationals and for some reason, even though my last name starts with an R, they're like riddle, you're shooting first. Um, how would you coach someone to cope with the anxiety knowing first stage, first day, you're up, everybody's watching you? Well, <laughs> I mean, there's there's different <laughs> routes that you could take, but I mean, first is just your interpretation of anxiety is some people view it as a threat. Some people view it as a challenge. So coming up with ways that we can perceive anxiety differently, view it as, you know, an opportunity. It's your body's giving you energy. How can I channel this energy versus just going automatically to a threat response where I'm under attack, I'm in defensive mode, something's wrong. That can be debilitating to performance. At the end of the day, it's all in our head. Like we're, how we perceive the situation is up to us. So if we're able to entertain a different possibility or to view stress as something that's actually helpful to us, that we can use. It's it's sharpening my attention. It's helping me focus. Let me leverage that versus let me get rid of that. I have to, you know, I can't perform with this thing. Swapping that out for let me leverage this thing so that I can I can use it to my benefit. And then okay. in terms of the, if, you know, saccades are an, a factor for you, rest your eyes on something for a few seconds. Just let them sit there. That calms things down internally. If my eyes aren't darting, my body doesn't respond as if it's under threat. If my eyes are calm, my body perceives that I'm safe, we can relax, and that has a reinforcing effect. Okay. So this year's College World Series, I don't know if you watched any of it, mm -hmm. um, Texas and Oklahoma. Oklahoma, everybody knew they were going to win anyway. They were ridiculously good this year. But you're that Texas batter, and you know this is you're, you're down by one. You got a runner on base. This is the last out. You either you either do something or your World Series is over and Oklahoma is a champion. There's a lot of stress on, on that person to perform. How would you tell them the same thing? Like that's what you need to do in order to be able to overcome the stress that they're feeling? I mean, for that type of situation, as much as you can, just go back to basics is – see ball hit ball what do i need to do to make contact with this ball get down a bunt move a runner get them back to the task not 
the situation or the circumstances because hitting the ball, whatever, you know, coach is calling you to do, the fundamentals of that are no different. It's just the circumstances that have changed. So if we can, you know, recognize, yes, this is a special circumstance and the fundamentals are still the same. What are some cues I can tell myself to make sure that, you know, I'm still playing softball. I'm not letting the moment get the best of me. Okay. So just whatever cues you need to stay within the moment and not be overwhelmed. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. That's interesting because there are people out there who use focus phrases right before they start shooting. Mm -hmm. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah.